This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Here we are, it's the week after Easter, and what happens the week after Easter? Now we actually have to start living this out as Easter people, because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not just a religious holiday, an interesting mystical or historical event. It has implications. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead means there are claims being made upon us and upon our lives. And right after the accounts of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the disciples who witnessed the risen Lord go on mission together. And they go to the ends of the earth with this message. Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead. And now God has exalted him as Lord and Savior. And you are commanded now by his authority to bow the knee in repentance and obedience. And with the resurrection of Jesus, with Easter, there come two choices, two alternatives that are offered to us. We can either joyfully welcome Jesus and rejoice in his conquest over sin and Satan and death, or we can jealously resist his claims and say no to his authority in our lives. Now, it's been a while since we've opened the pages of 1 Samuel together. But we're going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 17, the previous chapter, which we covered in Mark, is one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. It's the story of David killing Goliath. And it was a desperate situation as this huge Philistine stood denouncing and threatening the Israelites. And they looked like they were a lost cause. They were about to be defeated and enslaved. And in that moment of lostness and desperation, this young hero steps on the stage and with his sling and his five stones, he brings about victory. Well, that's a famous chapter and it's a simple, straightforward story. Giants tend to be simple and straightforward, but the aftermath of victory is much trickier for David to navigate. And in many ways, much more dangerous. So let's read this story together in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to share it on my screen with you here. And we'll read the word of God together. This is the word of the Lord. After David had finished talking with Saul, this is on the battlefield right after killing Goliath, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. 
As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from this time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here's my oldest daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then David ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David. But David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well-known. This is the word of God. So, David has killed Goliath. The giant is dead. And as David stands there on the battlefield, the whole Israelite army leaps up and yells in victory and celebration. And they go charging down the hill towards the panic Philistines who turn and run. They run for their lives as they're being cut down 
as they flee back to their homelands in defeat and disarray. And in the aftermath of battle, Saul summons David to his tent. Abner, the general, opens the flap of the tent and he brings David in behind him. And there David is standing before the king. In one hand, he has Goliath's dripping sword. And in his other hand, he has Goliath's dripping head. And as Saul's questioning David, there is someone else in the tent with them. It's Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. He's the crown prince. And Jonathan is a heroic man in his own right. There was a famous story about Jonathan and his armor bearer, just the two of them, climbing a cliff to reach the Philistine camp at the top. And when they reach the top, they cut a wide swath to the Philistines who flee and run for their lives as well on that day. Jonathan was a heroic man. He was a man who had great zeal for the kingdom of Israel and for the glory of God. But Goliath was too formidable even for a heroic, brave, godly man like Jonathan. The giant was too huge for him, but he was not too much for David. And here Jonathan is in the tent looking on in awe as this young hero walks in with the trophies of battle. It's probably not the first time that Jonathan had met David. David had been serving, after all, at the court of King Saul. He was a gifted musician, and with his harp, with his lyre, he could soothe the king on his troubled days, the days when the dark spirit would overcome him. But now Jonathan realizes that David is more than a talented musician. He's more than a gifted artist. David is a man of war. And as Jonathan looks at David, there's something that stirs deep in his heart. And the narrator tells us that in that moment, Jonathan becomes one in spirit with David. Literally, his soul is knit to David. His very self becomes bound up with David's self. And then Jonathan makes a covenant with David. They seal a pact together together. Because Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, we'd be deeply misreading this story to see homosexual infatuation here. And that interpretation really says a lot more about the inability of modern Western men to form deep friendships with one another than it says about anything in the ancient world. C.S. Lewis has... Uh, a deep and profound book called The Four Loves. And he talks in there about the difference between a romance and friendship. Romance, he says, is when two people are standing face to face, gazing in infatuation into each other's eyes. But friendship is when two people are not looking into each other's eyes, but they're standing side by side, facing forward towards something much greater than either of them. And Lewis says that friendship arises when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some interest or insight or even taste that the others around them do not share. And that till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. And the typical expression of opening friendship would be, would be something like, what? You two? I thought I was the only one. Jonathan, I imagine, was 
somewhat of a lonely man. There were not many people in Israel like Jonathan. There was really no one else in the land like this man. And he's, in fact, really quite estranged from his own father, who's not someone who shares Jonathan's love, his faith, and his hope in God. And when David walks into the tent, at last, Jonathan is looking at someone who shares his own character and his own passion. And Jonathan's devotion to David is total and it's immediate. It's not a long, slow, difficult process that takes years to develop. It happens right away as soon as Jonathan encounters David in this situation. And we're told that Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, this is a deeply symbolic gesture that Jonathan is making, whether or not he fully realized it at the time, because what he's offering David is all the tokens and symbols of office. It's a symbolic surrender of his own inheritance rights, of his own future as the king that Jonathan is making to David. Now, Jonathan's father, King Saul, had hardened his heart. He'd rebelled against God. He did not want to listen to God's direction through Samuel. And the punishment upon Saul was that the kingdom would be taken away from him. There would be no dynasty. There would be no house of Saul. And that meant there would never be a King Jonathan. And that feels, that feels tragic, doesn't it? Because as we get to know Jonathan through the pages of 1 Samuel and the coming chapters, we realize that Jonathan would have made a great king of Israel. He would have made one of the greatest of the kings of Israel, certainly in comparison to the many sorry figures who would sit on the thrones of Israel and Judah. Jonathan would have made a fantastic, faith-filled, heroic, and brave king. But that reign is not to be. And the punishment of Saul is really also a punishment that Jonathan shares in, a punishment and a loss that he does not deserve personally, but that has come upon him because of his relationship with his father. And we're not told how Jonathan dealt with all this how he uh, took, undertook this hard fate that he was given. But clearly, by this point, Jonathan has somehow made peace with his own future kingship being taken away from him. He somehow managed to graciously bow to this blow from God. And somehow he's wrestled through this in his own heart so that when David arrives there's not even a flicker of hesitation on Jonathan's part, not a quiver or a qualm because Jonathan has a greater ambition than his personal ego. He has a greater ambition than his own destiny as a King. He has a great ambition for Israel and her destiny in God and how God is going to reveal his glory among the nations. And in comparison to the great plans of God, it doesn't seem to matter very much to Jonathan, at least by this point 
what role he plays in God's plan. And so when he offers all these things to David, when he surrenders his robe and his armor and his weapons, you don't get the sense from Jonathan that this is a great sacrifice. It seems like by this point, it's a relief to the crown prince. And it's a joy, in fact. He's doing this, not gritting his teeth, but he's doing it out of deep love for David. And he offers David a loyalty that Jonathan will never regret or turn his back on, a loyalty that will go on until he dies years later in battle. And Jonathan in this story, in this chapter, is not the only one who responds this way to David. We're told again and again of all the people who love David. David seems to be a man who commands love wherever he goes and, and whomever he meets. The servants love David. The officers love David. The women love David. All the people of Israel love David. David is loved by every single person in this chapter. Every single person but one. And that person is King Saul. And here we're shown a second way, an alternative way to respond to the victory of God's anointed one. And this is the way of jealous resistance. It didn't happen immediately. I'm sure Saul felt a massive sense of relief and a huge burden sliding from his shoulders when Goliath toppled over and David stood over him, cutting off his head. Saul, after all, is always on the look for valiant men. He's got his eye open for warriors that he can add to his bodyguard and to the little army that he's building. He's looking for men who can strengthen his reign and who can give Saul a tighter grip on the crown. And at first, David seems like he's going to be this kind of person. And Saul is glad to promote him and to put him into positions of authority. But that grateful feeling does not last very long at all. Mere hours, in fact, because as Saul is returning from battle, he's greeted by dancing, singing women. And this is the song that all the ladies are singing. Saul has struck down his thousands and David, his ten thousands. Now, if you stop and think about that, that song is actually quite generous to Saul, because in reality, Saul's personal tally was zero. Saul had made absolutely no contribution at all to the victory on the battlefield in the valley. It was 100% David's doing. Saul, who was the tallest of the Israelites, and he was the one who possessed the armor, had hung back in fear. David was the one who had stepped forth in faith. And a wiser and more grateful king would have been thankful for the little bit of reflected glory he was enjoying through David's triumph. But this song makes Saul deeply angry. It enrages him, in fact, and he's fuming in resentment and self-pity, putting on the polite smile, no doubt, but inside he's fuming. And he asks himself, what more can David get than the kingdom? And here, perhaps, Saul is beginning to wonder, because when the kingdom had been taken away from Saul, when God had left him, in Samuel's final speech, he had prophesied 
side that God was going to raise up a neighbor, a man better than Saul, someone who was more deserving of the kingship and someone God would be glad to anoint as the true king. And Saul was a suspicious man, and he must have been wondering at this point, is this the man of prophecy? Is this the person that God is raising up to take over my throne? Be careful, Saul. Be careful. This is a dangerous one. And he needs a jealous, watchful eye upon him. The very next day, a harmful spirit from God visits Saul. And this is divine judgment that Saul is experiencing. It's punishment from God for abandoning him. And Saul is having these, these fits and these frenzies. It's a mental and emotional disintegration that he's experiencing. Saul is beginning to fall apart. And David, as is his task, is sitting there playing his harp. And Saul is slouched in his chair, brooding a dark cloud hanging over him. And then on a sudden murderous impulse, Saul flings his heavy spear right at David's head. And David manages to dodge the blow. There's a second attempt on David's life and the door closes behind David as he runs for his life. And you would think, you would think that must have been a frightening experience for David. I don't think that he sensed Saul's deeper motivation. It seems just like it was another attack. This one perhaps more deadly than the previous fits that Saul had had but he doesn't seem to have discerned Saul's deep jealousy and suspicion and hate. You would think this would have been frightening for David, but the very next verse, verse 12, tells us that it was Saul who was afraid of David. And you'd think that Saul is the king, he holds all the cards, he has all the power in this situation, but Saul is afraid because he knows that the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. There was a time when the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Saul and he was prophesying and he enjoyed the presence and power of God, but those days are long past. And now Saul sees with growing dread that the Lord is with someone else. And that fills Saul with fear. And he thinks, surely it's a dangerous thing to have this guy hanging around the palace. I'll send him out on a field campaign. He gives him a command and to Saul's annoyance, David enjoys success after success. And his popularity, which you would think would have been at a peak after killing Goliath, in fact, soars even higher. And Saul sees this happening and he can't stop it. And he sits there in his palace, increasingly isolated from everyone around him, his servants, his children, his people. And he broods and he nurses fear and suspicion and hatred. Clearly a more subtle scheme is called for and he discovers his daughter, Michael, is in love with David, which is excellent news for him because she can be baited like a trap. David is too poor to afford the dowry a princess can summon, and Saul knows that. 
And so he sets up the situation and he tells David, no, no, uh, money is not necessary. No cows, no donkeys, no goats need to be offered to me. All I ask is for another heroic campaign from you, David. Because Saul's thinking to himself, surely David's luck can't go on forever. You can get fortunate with uh, slinging a stone at a giant's head, but it's going to run out eventually. I can't kill him myself. David's too popular for that. Even kings can do everything they want. But I can get the Philistines to do the dirty work for me. And they're going to drag David down. They're going to exalt over his dead corpse. And the funny thing about it is that they're going to be doing me a huge favor when they do so. But, of course, the whole plot backfires. David returns triumphant. He's got twice as many foreskins as Saul had asked for. And now Saul has painted himself into a corner. He's made David his own son-in-law, the last thing he wanted to do. And Saul's fear continues to grow and continues to take him over. And we're told at the end of the chapter that Saul becomes David's enemy the rest of his days. Saul, in fact, in 1 Samuel, had been the first person, we're told, who loved David. But now Saul can only see David as a threat and as an enemy, as someone who must be eliminated for Saul to ease his mind. It's sad and it's tragic because Saul is fighting a battle he is doomed to lose because the Lord is with David, not with Saul. And so by fighting David, Saul is fighting God. And that's a fight no one can ever win. Notice, by the way, that David is not trying to make himself Saul's enemy. He's not the one plotting and scheming. He's not the one thinking how he can assassinate Saul and move him out of the way so that he can take over as the king. In fact, in this chapter, you'll see that David is fairly passive. God's promised him the kingship. Samuel has anointed him. And David is leaving it in the hands of God to take care of. He's just doing his thing. He's being faithful. He's being loyal to King Saul. And God is the one opening doors, not David. And in fact, because God is with him, all of Saul's hateful and murderous schemes only advance David higher. Because everything that men mean for evil... God is constantly turning for good for those who love him. So here we are. It's sister. Goliath is dead. And the hero has returned. Jesus has defeated sin. He's defeated death. And he's defeated Satan. And now, just like in our story, choices must be made. We must pick a side. And we're challenged, just like everyone in this chapter, to respond to the victory of God's anointed. And ultimately, we only have two choices. We can joyfully submit, like Jonathan does, or we can jealously resist, like Saul tries to do. Submit or resist. The only two choices we have when we're confronted with Jesus.
See, when Jesus rose from the dead, not everyone was happy. Many people were threatened by the resurrection. They were the ones with the power, the prestige, status. They were the ones with something to lose by a new and rival king rising up. And they knew right away, this is a dangerous, dangerous occurrence. And this thing must be shut down immediately. And they were right in a way to feel threatened because when Jesus rises from the dead, he's not just doing some kind of magic trick. He is making a claim to kingship. He is stepping forth as the only one who can conquer the enemies of God's people, the only one who is worthy to wear the crown. Saul at first thought that David could be co-opted, that he could use David to prop up his own throne. And Saul quickly discovered that is not going to be a possibility. And the same thing is true of Jesus. We're tempted, and I think those of us who are in the church are especially tempted to co-opt Jesus for our own purposes. How can I use Jesus and how can I use his power? How can I manipulate who he is and what he's done to pursue my own ends, to achieve the things that I want to achieve in my life? And we will discover whether it's quickly or eventually that Jesus is not willing to serve our own little kingdoms. He's inviting us into a much larger and greater kingdom where he's the one on the throne. And that is very difficult for sinful people like ourselves to accept. Because sin, the essence of sin is rebellion against the authority of God. I want to be in charge. I want to be the captain of my fate. I want to be the master of my soul. I don't want other people to be interfering in my life and telling me how I should live it. I want to make those decisions myself. And the words of Satan in Milton's Paradise Lost echo in all of our hearts when he said, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So the risen Lord is threatening. He's threatening to our little kingdoms and our suspicious minds tell us, keep a jealous eye on this Jesus. Keep a jealous eye on him. Watch him carefully. Don't allow him to have more authority than you want him to have in your life. And, you know, the tragedy is that this paranoia is keeping us from true life with God. Because true life is only offered to those who surrender themselves completely to the kingship of Jesus. And it's so sad that we're filled with suspicion and fear, and we're trapped in our own little egos, which is really the smallest prison that anyone can be shut up in. And those who resist Jesus are fated to lose. Because God is with Christ, Jesus is on the throne. He is ruling over all of history and over every nation in this world. And everything is being worked for his ultimate victory. And in the end, as Philippians 2 tells us, every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee above and below and on this earth, 
is going to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus. His victory is inevitable. And so resisting a tragic and doomed effort. But there's another choice that's offered to us. It's not just about um, resistance being broken. There's another uh, opportunity that we have, and that is the choice that Jonathan makes, the choice of glad submission. And by the Holy Spirit, when Jesus arrives, we can recognize him not as a threat, not as an enemy, but as our long-awaited friend, as someone who wishes us well. Because if we're honest, we have to admit that we don't make very good kings over our own lives. And taking that responsibility for yourself ends up being a crushing burden. Because we can't control everything in our lives. We can't handle every eventuality. We can't protect ourselves against every possible threat that will take us down. And when we try to do that, it puts this terrible burden of anxiety upon our own shoulders. And in the end, it's self-destructive. And we're going to disintegrate just like Saul begins to do. Instead, the Holy Spirit invites us to welcome Christ and to see him as a king who brings flourishing wherever he goes. Jesus has not come to crush us, to push us down into the dirt, to humiliate us, and to take away every good thing from us so that we can be his slaves. Jesus has come to rescue us from our enemies, to provide all of our needs, and to humble us only that we might be exalted in his service. You know, even those of us who are disciples, we struggle with surrender to Jesus. We all find it difficult to make the painful choice to offer him every corner of our lives. And what we thought when we first came to Jesus was total surrender to him as we sealed the pact, as we signed the covenant to him. The Holy Spirit begins to reveal there's a lot in our lives that we have not fully offered to him. And we give him so much service with our lips and yet so much of our hearts and our lives we keep back from him. It's as though we've imitated Jonathan in offering Jesus the robe and the armor, but we want to hold back the sword, the bow, and even the belt from him. And we begin to resent it that Jesus is demanding all these things from us. Why does he keep pushing his finger and probing at these spots in my life that I want to keep for myself? And we need fresh faith, don't we, to recover the sense of high privilege of extending the reign of Christ in our own hearts. There was a time when it felt like a joy to surrender to Jesus, when that felt like freedom and liberation to offer ourselves to him. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us recover that glad surrender to Jesus, because that is definitely not something that we can do in the power of the flesh. We need a resurrection in our own lives, don't we? 
And the pain we're experiencing from Jesus is him destroying in our lives what holds us back from an abundant relationship with him. I love Jonathan. He's one of the most kingly people in the Bible, even though he never sat on the throne himself. And I think perhaps Jonathan is most kingly when he's surrendering his crown to the true king, to God's anointed one. That's what makes Jonathan so noble, far more noble than his father who is grasping with his tight fingernails onto the throne. And we all have this opportunity before Jesus to act with similar nobility. It's what as human beings we were made to do, to offer ourselves in service to our true king. There was a Scotsman 150 years ago or so, his name was George Madison. And he was a young man in his almost 20, and he was engaged to a lovely young woman. And then he began to lose his eyesight. And he went blind when he was around 20 years old. And the woman he was hoping to spend the rest of his life with decided she couldn't handle living with a person with this kind of handicap and she abandoned him. And it was a long, long, painful journey for this man. And years later, he wrote this hymn. Here's the words. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. My will is not my own, till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach a monarch's throne, it must its crown resign. And this is the paradox of being a disciple of Jesus. He promises a crown to each one of us. He promises us exaltation and glory. And that only comes when we bow ourselves completely before Jesus. And when we're on our knees before him, when we're what feels like at our lowest, we're actually at our highest because this is what we were made to do to live our lives in service, in love, and in loyalty to Jesus. It's only those who give up their lives who find true life in Christ. So let's bow our heads and pray, shall we? And ask that God would help us to make the hard steps, whatever the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart right now, the hard step, but the grace-filled step of giving ourselves afresh to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to know you is eternal life and to serve you is perfect freedom. And we ask you to forgive us of the many ways, great and small, that we resist your Lordship in our lives. You know what those things are, O oh Lord. We know what those things are. And yet we have hesitated to extend to allow your authority to extend to that precious corner of our lives. Forgive us for our sinful resistance to your reign. We don't want to be like King Saul in this demented, fruitless campaign against you. We do want to surrender to you, but it is so 
hard for us to do because the flesh is strong and the spirit is so weak. And so, Jesus, as we meditate on your victory through your cross and your resurrection, fill us with a love like Jonathan's, with a loyalty like Jonathan's, that we would be wholly given over to you, that we would find joy and gladness and freedom and relief in allowing you to be king over our lives. And now let's take a moment in private, silent, personal prayer. If the Holy Spirit is putting something on your heart, take a moment to pray and ask for forgiveness and for new strength from God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.